Spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. Crash landed. From comics to video games. From the cinematic universe to television. Connecting you to the biggest stars in the industry. Something out there had discovered us. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. We don't need a speedster or DeLorean to come to you from the future. That's right. It's episode 253 of the Down and Nerdy podcast. I'm James Witham. And the reason I say that is this is a little bit unprecedented, a little bit unorthodox for us. But this is actually me from August of 2019. I know you're thinking, okay, the, the show says this is from February of 2019. So what's the deal here? And, and I'm going to explain it right now. This is something that I've never done before and, and something that in order for this to happen has to be very, very extreme circumstances. And that's kind of where I feel like I'm in right now. And I, this is not like a prepared statement or anything like that completely. Uh, just me being me as the owner and operator of the down and nerdy podcast and not just the host, but I, I this is, this is mine. I, I, I own this and I feel like I take responsibility for what goes out to you, the listeners. So I will say that, there's a chance that you've listened to this show already, again, since it was posted in February of 2019, and you've already heard what's been on the show. Now, the show did, if you haven't listened to it until now, it had featured an interview, just like all of our shows do, it featured an interview with comic book writer Jai Nitz about one of his brand new projects. Now, at the time, of course, this interview, again, was recorded in February that was before the allegations came out against Giantz for sexual misconduct. Now, I'm not going to sit here and talk about any legal matters or anything like that. All I'm going to do is talk about this from the perspective of this show here at the Down and Nerdy Podcast. And I feel that given the allegations that have come out against Giantz and statements that Nitz himself has made since the allegations have come out, which I will not read to you here. I'm, I'm sure that you've either seen them or you can Google it. it. It's out there. Let me just put it that way. Everything, everything's out there. The accusations, statements that he's made after those accusi- accusations, they're out there. But based on all of that information, I've decided to do something I've never done before. And I, I'm going to pull the interview. The, the interview that was featuring Giantz, that was part of this episode, now no longer is part of this episode. Now I thought it was really important to come on here again, editing this show, which is something I've only ever had to do one other time. I've never had to go back and edit a show after the fact before that's already been posted. And I've certainly never, I've never take completely taken an entire segment of a show out before. So I felt like it was really important. To come on and tell you guys what was going on, why I decided to pull the interview and I just feel like it's the right thing to do. I'm, I, I, had I known the allegations against Giantz before I did this interview, absolutely wouldn't have done it. Absolutely 100% would not have done the interview. And that's the reason that taking it out now, because it just it doesn't feel right to leave the interview in this episode. But if you haven't listened to this episode already, there uh, there is some good stuff Still here talking about the Ghostbusters controversy that happened. Also, a review of the Umbrella Academy adaptation from Netflix. A whole bunch of other nerd news to get to. So, still plenty of great stuff on this edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. And this will start as it always does. And that's with some comics. It's what we're reading next 
on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hi, this is writer Mark Miller, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hit that power button on the laptop or the tablet and drag out the long box, whatever you're reading on. It's time for what we're reading, and I'm actually going to start, I mean, you'd think I would start with one of the biggest books of the week, but I think this is also one of the biggest books of the week as well. So I'm going to start with High Level, number one from Vertigo and DC, Rob Sheridan writing it, Barnaby Begenda on the art, and Raul Fajardo Jr. on the colors. Now, this follows a woman named 13 who's a scavenger kind of taking jobs and living out her life kind of in her own little corner of the world. She likes her life the way it is, where it is, and makes no apologies for that. And, and you know, right off the bat, you kind of respect her for that, right? But I'll get to that here in a second. Now, she has a meeting for one of her jobs that kind of almost lands her in the wrong place at the wrong time. You definitely want to pay attention to the surroundings, by the way, while this is going on. Look at the stuff that's not just right there in front of you, but the stuff that's around you, because trust me, it's going to matter later on the issue. When I went back and read this for a second time, I was like, oh, I didn't notice that the first time, didn't notice that the first time, so make sure you're paying close attention to what's going on during this particular part of the story. Of course, I'm not spoiling any of this stuff for you, so you'll know it once you're at the end. I can tell you that right now. If you saw it in the beginning, you'll know what I'm talking about at the end. Now, it's pretty clear when she meets up with some of her friends and other scavengers and stuff like that, that she's comfortable where she is, like I said. And one of her friends is actually going to a place called High Level, hence the title of the book. And it's kind of a place where, you know, you're supposed to find your purpose and ascend sort of thing. And there's kind of like a veiled jab at religion in the beginning of the book, which I thought was really, really interesting and, and kind of plays a role in how High Level is looked at and defined, I think, in this story. So what is a major security force, though, doing in 13's small little part of the world. Now, when she goes on her next job, not only is she going to find that out, but in the midst of finding out what's going on, it's it's part of a little bit of trouble that she gets in. I mean, it's comics, man. You know, you go, everybody ta- every time somebody talks about something being simple and they'll out of, be out of there in five seconds, is it ever simple and they're out of there in five seconds? As Tom Waltz would say, it's comics, man. So, I, now, here's the deal, though. She, she obviously... Maybe a tiny spoiler alert, but it'd be pretty, you know, mundane story if your main character gets killed in the first issue. So she gets herself out of it, but she gets a little help from a very familiar face from her past, and they kind of get into that quickly in the story. Now, this kind of leads to a bigger job that she's not really going to be happy about, and that's all I can really tell you. But again, pay attention to the beginning part of this book because it matters and it has to do exactly with what's going on here at the end. Now, as far as the story, I mean, this really feels like a very cool smuggler's run type of story. It's very, very neat. And the business doesn't exactly feel legit, but it is legit, or at least it it seems like it's legit anyway. There's no indication that it isn't. For some reason, though, maybe I'm crazy. 13 actually reminds me a bit of a punk version of Rey from Star Wars. Maybe because Rey was a bit of a, of a scavenger herself, and maybe that's why I'm making the connection. But there was just this sort of innocence about her, and just sort of her, this is my life, and I'm fine with it kind of vibe. And that really, really made me think of Rey in a very, very good and positive way. Now, I found myself rooting for her absolutely 100% instantly, and thinking that she really has potential that she hasn't fully realized yet. Again, getting Ray vibes there. I also got a real Overwatch vibe 
from this story, both from the from the story and the art. It's got a really cool punk version, a really punk vibe to it. Very, very cool. Very sort of futuristic. My gut tells me this is going to be a really fun ride that we're going to go on with high level, starting with this first issue. And Vertigo really been on a roll with these last few books they've put out. This is a poll for me, man. I was really, really psyched after I got done reading this book. There's just something very, very neat about it. And then I can't wait to see how what happens at the end plays out in the in the coming issues. Now, here's the book that I mentioned, and I figured, I said that it's probably the biggest book of the week only because you've got Mark Millar attached to it, right? And Netflix, that's right, Sharky the Bounty Hunter, number one, from Image Comics and Netflix, that partnership with Millar World. Can't forget Simone Bianchi on the art and Peter Doherty on the letters for this one. Now, you meet Sharky right away at the beginning of the story, Very much no-filter type bounty hunter. I mean, he's smarter than he looks, though, and every bit is tough. Now, the problem is he's kind of fallen on some tough times. Now, we, we, we see after having a bit of fun... After one of the bounties is, is taken in, that's, that's kind of all I'll say. It's very uh, high octane. Let's just put it that way. You'll know it when you see it. Now, he's kind of getting ready to go on to his next job, and but something kind of unexpected comes up based on the last job. And it's very random, and and it's very kind of awkward at the same time, and you'll understand why when you see it. Now, whether or not he chooses to ignore it, and something that we find out later on in the story. So that does, we do get a conclusion to that in the first issue. Now, what does have his attention, though, is a huge bounty that just came up. This is one of those you punch your ticket for retirement type of jobs, you know, but it's, you know, full of danger. And, you know, what else would you expect from a story called Sharky the Bounty Hunter? Now, this is one that there's going to be a ton of competition for. Obviously, time is of the essence, but is there something that might slow him down? is the question. Now, we do get to meet another bounty hunter in this story. We don't really get a name, though, but after seeing what this bounty hunter can do, this is going to be some seriously major competition. I mean, you want to talk about a badass mic drop moment for this other bounty hunter? It's like, wow, how do you compete with that and where you even go from there? It was a really cool moment in the book that I really, really dug, and I'm like, wow, that's, first of all, that's smart and diabolical. At the same time. Now, for some reason, and again, this is just me getting a vibe. This this whole story reminded reminds me of like Lobo meets Spaceballs. That might be a wacky comparison, but Sharky himself reminds me of Lobo so much in such a good way. But there's also something about the story that seemed more like a hardcore version of Spaceballs. And, you know, kind of like Lone Star's kind of decision about what he wants to do, you know, go for the money or go for something else. But there's a twist to that story that's not exactly like it was in Spaceballs. And again, you'll find that out once you read the book. Now, the imagery of this book was very futuristic with a real grunge factor to it. I mean, this world felt so dirty and it really lends itself to the story so, so well. It actually, remember Empty Zone? From Jason Sean Alexander. Visually, it reminds me a lot of that. Different art styles, definitely very different stories. But look-wise, as far as the world that's being presented, really, really felt like Empty Zone. As a matter of fact, if, if this was set in the Empty Zone universe, that would be really, really cool. I know that's probably not going to happen. Or there's not going to be a crossover or something at some point. Maybe there will be. I don't know. I just think that, that would be really cool if these characters could cross paths. Because 
It just seems like there could be some similarities there. Anyway, just really, really cool looking book. The art was very, very good. You know, just grungy. And that's the way that this whole story really felt. Sharky, definitely very, very entertaining. Something you could definitely see being adapted to the screen at some point. Yet another pull for me. I'm entertained. I want to see what Sharky's going to do. It's like Lobo, the badass, with a little bit more heart than you would absolutely think coming from a character like that. Very, very well done. That's going to do it for what we're reading. Up next, going to be going to the Umbrella Academy. In the first season on Netflix, we'll have some spoilers for you next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Yeah, brother. This is Josh Segura, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Who says that Netflix can't do comic book shows? Outside of Marvel, Dark Horse is here to save the day with the Umbrella Academy. That's right, Season 1 just came out on Netflix. Definitely going to be dropping some spoilers in this review, but not really going to go too, too deep into details of the story or anything like that. I'm not going to spoil the ending either because I think that's kind of a dick move, so we're not going to do that. But what I will tell you right off the bat is this. I don't want you to shy away from this. Because you haven't read the comics. This is very, very friendly to any new fans that aren't familiar with the source material or anything like that. So if you've been holding off wondering that, this absolutely tells you not just about what's happening with the story, but also, you know, each individual character, who they are, what their skill set is, what their relationship is to some of the other characters and their dad and their mom and stuff like that. So Don't worry about that. Now, for the nuts and bolts of it, though, this is based on the Dark Horse comic series from Jared Way and Gabriel Ba. 43 women spontaneously give birth on the same day. They weren't pregnant when the day started, but they end up giving birth anyway. That's the really, really interesting part of this story. Now, an eccentric billionaire actually adopts seven of them and forms this Umbrella Academy. And now I should mention that, well, these children have abilities, all except for one. And that's Vanya, but we will get to that, very much get to that. It's going to be one of our big spoilers later on in this review. Now, once you get into the Umbrella Academy itself, I mean, you've got a chimp butler named Pogo. You've got Mom, who is an AI robot that sort of takes care of the kids. Dad is very much a distant kind of heartless bastard, if you want to call him that, because that's what a couple of the kids have called him at one point. But they're not really kids anymore. We do get to see them as kids as well, and they're quite the crime-fighting team when they're younger, that's for sure, but it's a little bit different now. So basically, Luther is Space Boy, if you're familiar with the story. Allison is Rumor. Diego loves to chuck his knives. You've got Ben, who is, spoiler alert, dead. You've got Klaus, who sees dead people. And then number five, they all have numbers, but number five is the only one that's actually called by his number at all times by everybody. Now, number five is a jumper, so, you know, teleportation abilities, and things like that. Now, what brings them all together, because a bunch of them have left the house. They haven't been there in forever. Dad dies, and that kind of brings everyone together for the first time in a long time. Now, what you get to find out right away is they don't like each other at all. I mean, when you go your separate ways and you become your own people, it's, it's almost a very real family dynamic, though, isn't it? Everybody goes their separate ways, becomes their own people, and, and you find out that, you know, maybe you don't necessarily get along all the time when you come back together. You know, like, I mean, you I'm sure you've had holidays like this at some point, but it's very much on a different level, especially for Diego, who seems to hate absolutely everyone. Now, the only thing that they can all seem to agree on is that 
Nobody seems to like Vanya. One of the reasons for that is, is that Vanya writes a tell-all book about the family. That That's never an easy thing to get over, right? I mean, what she's the only one that doesn't have abilities, and you find out as, as the story goes on, she was exiled because of it by dad, held out of missions and stuff like that, wasn't really around her fellow quote-unquote brothers and sisters at all. It was very much she was isolated and she was meant to be the black sheep of the family. And that, to me, is one of the most interesting parts of this entire story, right? Because society tends to shun those that are different, that display some sort of uniqueness, and they sometimes get shunned for that. Or they get you know pushed to the side because of that. Or they get made fun of, looked down on because of that. Vanya is 100% normal, and that's the thing that makes her the outcast. And that is fascinating to me, that somebody would finally go ahead and tell a story from that perspective, because it just doesn't seem like that's something that you see every day. And to me, that's one of the brilliant parts about this entire story, is that because she's normal, and because she didn't really fit in with the rest of them being so different, she was the one that ends up being the black sheep of the family. I thought that that was really, really interesting. But, of course, another interesting part of this whole story is is that Five has been gone for a long, long time. When he comes back through a basically time travel portal, not only is he still a kid because he Benjamin buttoned himself when he came back, but it turns out, there's an apocalypse coming, and they have to stop it. And that is your basis of the story right there. Now, what's interesting is what happens later on when you find out, A, why Dad is dead, and B, the fact that he basically knew about this apocalypse somehow the entire time, and that's why he knew that they had to come together. Now, if that's not enough, the people who are trying to cause this apocalypse are called the Commission. Not necessarily the cause, but they're like the time police, right? They try to maintain integrity of the timeline. We've seen this in other stories before, but this is very, very different. And, and you, you see that in Hazel and Cha-Cha. Basically, they're sent by the commission to take out number five, or at least bring him back, because they know that number five is here to screw up the timeline. They have a very tough time bringing number five in, by the way. And number five is ruthless. If you've ever read the comics... You know that number five is probably the most ruthless of them. I know Diego maybe gives him a run for his money on that. But, I mean, you want to talk about just cutthroat. Sometimes, literally, number five is the most brutal of all of them. And it almost seems like he's the most powerful because of that. But, I mean, as far as powers go, Luther is the strong one. Rumor, Allison basically has the thing where... She can get people to do whatever she wants. She just says that she heard a rumor, and then there you go. And Diego with his directional knives, and you know, he's, Klaus obviously sees dead people. But you find out that while number five was gone, basically it was a time travel thing, and he ends up just randomly jumping to prove to dad that he can travel through time, and he ends up seeing the apocalypse. He sees his family dead. Not only that, he has to live basically by himself in this post-apocalyptic wasteland and survive for over a decade or more. So, I mean, that right there, what that does to you is pretty insane. And then you see what happens to all these other members of the family, Luther being exiled on the moon, things that 
Klaus has gone through, and he's kind of a junkie, but then he ends up time traveling at one point in the story and ends up being gone for about a year, even though it's instantaneous in our time. He's gone for about a year. He actually experiences war. He falls in love and completely changes his character. These characters go through so many evolutions and have so many different types of problems that are unique to them. It's very, very fascinating because in a group setting, you can really get involved in what each character has going on for them. And whether you love them or you hate them for it, whether you're entertained by them or not because of it, you definitely form opinions on each individual character as you go. And they have their they some of they all have the redeeming qualities and they all have their qualities that might make you not like them as well. It's a very up and down thing with all of these characters. And then even when you have a character that you can that you can trust, like Pogo. Pogo seems like the one. He just wants to keep the family together. He just wants to keep everything in line. And then you find out that he's been lying to them the entire time as well about what happened to Dad. But when they do finally get down and agree on something, man, is it magic. It's really, really great. But then you see what happens to their villain. And this is, again, one of those arguments for... Do the heroes create their own villains? Because let's talk about Harold Jenkins for a second. You meet Harold Jenkins a little bit later on. Turns out he's the one that's responsible for the apocalypse, or at least we think he is at some point going on in the story. I said I wouldn't spoil the ending. I'm not gonna. So Harold Jenkins is like your super fan of the Umbrella Academy. Harold Jenkins has had a tough life. His dad, also not a very good dude for very, very different reasons, obsessed with the Umbrella Academy. Was also born on the same day as them too, by the way. Wants to meet them, wants to be a part of the team. Just wants to get the hell away from his father. And he's shunned by the dad, by Mr. Hargraves himself. And his dreams kind of crushed at that point. So what happens? He dedicates his life to being pissed off at the Umbrella Academy and Hargraves himself. So now, new identity. He actually finds a way to get... I want to say inside Vanya's head, not literally, it's not like it's a powers type of thing, but manipulates her to kind of be on his side. He also ends up getting the journal for Hargraves, which was kind of ditched by Klaus when he was pawning stuff for drug money. It's all a big thing. But I got to say that the Harold Jenkins story is kind of fascinating because you could see why he'd be upset. Obviously not, you know, destroy the world upset. You don't really want to see that. But you can you certainly sympathize with why he would be upset. But again, there's nothing redeeming about the dad at all in this story. But it doesn't break the story either. There's nothing redeeming about the father whatsoever. He's a jerk. They, they all dislike him for different reasons. And, you know, it's one of those things, well, I was trying to prepare you for something. And there's a line that Klaus has when he's talking to dad later on in the story where he's like, we were just kids. What he did to these kids to prepare them is not something the kids would be ready for, but to him it didn't matter because it was for the greater good. So it's one of those dads that kind of like pushes the kid because he thinks they need it when that's not really the right way to go about it. Now, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. You want to judge the parenting. You can do that on your own. For I'm saying the kids weren't really ready for it, but that's just my opinion. And you see what it turns them into as individuals later on and how hard it is for them to come together later on as well so when you see Harold Jenkins get shunned and he has another name too 
in the story too, by the way, of course, yeah, like I said, changing his identity. And what he does then to push Vanya to discover that, oh, by the way, Vanya does have a power after all. And again, want to be mad at dad more. He was suppressing it in Vanya this entire time, as it turns out. And, and these kids are still learning about each other as adults. Like nobody knew that Luther was half ape basically, because of something that happened on one of the missions. He wore a giant overcoat. Not everybody knew. Well, they know now because of a fight that they had with Cha-Cha and Hazel inside the mansion. You even get a lot invested in Cha-Cha and Hazel because Hazel eventually just doesn't want to do this the whole assassin thing anymore. And that causes a conflict between them. So this is such a great comic book-based drama story but it is also so character-driven. You wouldn't expect something so much of an ensemble to be so character-driven. But Umbrella Academy really, really is. And it shows how you can tell a superhero story and make it different. That was one thing I said about Doom Patrol last week, was that it was so out there. It was so crazy and it was so different. And you kind of see where there are some similarities with Doom Patrol and why you would want Jared Way working on a property like that, like they tried to do with the comics before, is that these it definitely has some similarities to Umbrella Academy. I'll throw the boys in there as well, something that's coming from Amazon. There's a little bit of a vibe of that in here too. But this is so unbelievably character-driven. It is such a great, great story, and it proves that you don't need Marvel if you're Netflix, if this show doesn't prove that to you, then absolutely nothing will. It's also proved to me that A, the whole release all the episodes at once and let us binge watch a thing works because it's exactly what I wanted to do with Umbrella Academy. It also proves to me that television is such a better medium for certain comic book stories. Imagine this as a movie. It never would have worked in a million years because you couldn't have gone into the depth of these characters. And here's the thing about these characters. They're all interesting before they're different for different reasons. They all have problems for different reasons. You want to find out about all of them for different reasons. And there's no way in such a short amount of time that this could have worked. The action is really, really good too. It's very spontaneous at times too, which I love. It's not like a all right, we're going to go and we're going to hunt down the bad guys and we're going to fight them sort of thing. No, this the action happens in such a spontaneous way that it doesn't necessarily surprise you, but it's like an, oh, here we go. It's like when you're watching NASCAR and suddenly there's a giant pileup of cars, right? You don't necessarily know that it's coming, but when it does, you're locked in to that moment. And it wasn't excessively violent. There was certainly a ton of violent scenes in this, but it wasn't over the top. The what There was really nothing done that was really over the top other than the music. The music was killer for this entire thing. The music that they chose, the moments that they chose to spotlight it, the dance between Luther and Allison, on point, loved it. Them all dancing to I Think We're Alone Now early on in the series, loved that too. It certainly had moments where it was super funny and I laughed out loud. There are plenty of serious moments. I mean, the, just the tragedy of Klaus's story alone I thought was really, really good. He definitely provided the most humor of the group too, by the way. And some of them were funny, not because of their quick, quick wit, but because what was happening to them 
I could spend a good 10-15 minutes on each character and telling you why I love them, why the actor that played them did such a fantastic job, because I don't think I saw any weak moments in this show at all, and that says a lot. I just got to tell you, I expected to like Umbrella Academy. I did not expect to love it, and I absolutely did. So I will give this 10 spontaneously opening umbrellas out of 10. You've got to have Umbrella Academy. Don't worry about not being familiar with the source material. Watch this show on Netflix. You will not be sorry that you did. That's going to do it for my spoiler-filled review of Umbrella Academy from Netflix and recap a little bit as well. Up next, some very controversial nerd news. We're not going to be afraid to tackle it on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Ray Chase, the voice of Noctis in Final Fantasy XV, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. It is almost the end of an era, and it's time for nerd news. The reason I say that is because big news coming from Nintendo of America in a press release today saying that Reggie Filzame is going to be retiring after 15 years with the company. He's gonna, his last date is going to be April the 15th, and I'll get into him in just a second, but his replacement, you just can't make this stuff up. I mean, this this couldn't be more perfect. Doug Bowser, that's right, Bowser is going to be replacing him. Yes, he has a marketing background. I mean, I'm not saying that the guy's not qualified. I'm sure he's very qualified. It's just you see that at Nintendo, and how can you not make that move, right? It's it's just too perfect. And the memes and the jokes alone are worth it. Like, Like, for example, I really hope that his reception person or assistant is female only because he'd have the the ability to say, well, you know, I can't, I she couldn't come to the phone because our princess is in another castle or something like that. You know, that's the only reason that I hope that his receptionist or uh, our assistant is female. I, because I, just so you could say that alone, there's just so many jokes that you could do and it's worth it for that alone. But Let's get back to Reggie Filzame for a second. I'm sure Doug Bowser is going to be doing a very good job, but he also has very big shoes to fill. Because, I mean, admittedly, Nintendo certainly had its ups and downs over the last 15 years. Nintendo Wii, I think, was a great success. I think Nintendo Wii U, probably not so much. But then you look, they've always remained innovative, if nothing else. And they were always the undisputed kings of handheld gaming. They've never been rivaled in that at all. Even with mobile gaming becoming so popular on phones and tablets and things of that nature, Nintendo was always at the top when it came to portable gaming. And then you you have to give him credit as well for being the man that was around when the Switch was introduced that again, once again, innovated gaming and gave us something new and different, and that's just what Nintendo has just been known for almost since its inception, certainly in the last 15 years. And what Reggie Filzame has given to us as gamers and as just nerds in general is a culture that will always be there because Nintendo has always remained true to themselves and true to their brand. They never deviated from that. Even when everybody was screaming and yelling at Nintendo to jump in, be more adult, do this, do that, compete with... Sony and compete with Microsoft. They said, "No, we're we're doing our thing. We're doing fine over here. We're good. You guys, you guys go do your thing. We're going to do our thing." That takes a lot of guts. 
And it also, you got to give Nintendo a lot of credit. They stuck with him. Even when things weren't exactly going the way that they wanted to be on top, of course, of everything, not just handheld gaming. They wanted to be on top, and they weren't. And there were times at E3 it was a disaster. It looked like Nintendo might not be around that much longer. Not only did they turn it around, but they turned it around by being themselves and figuring out what they needed to do to compete, not necessarily to turn into everybody else, but to do their thing. And they found that niche, and they made it work. And that's something that Reggie Filsame has to be given a ton of credit for. And he stuck with it as well. So just thank you to him for all of his innovative ideas, for his passion. Ever since E3 2004, I think it was, when he just kind of burst onto the scene. And he's just always been the face of Nintendo. Everywhere Nintendo went, it seemed like Reggie Filsame wasn't far behind. So just for him, for his passion, you've deserved... I mean, whatever you're going to move on to next, if you truly are retiring and just going to sit back and enjoy... Reggie, you have enjoyed it. Thank you so much for everything that you've done for the business. Now I want to move on to something that's way more controversial. And I am going to talk about this, and I might make everybody mad. But let's see how this goes. Jason Reitman said something really stupid. Or at least the way he said it was really stupid. Now, he was on the Bill Burr podcast, I believe it was. And basically, I'm going to paraphrase this saying that he's going to be giving Ghostbusters back to the fans with his new, whatever you want to call it, movie. Continuation, sequel, revival, whatever. Call it whatever you want. I don't really care. But that's not really the point here. Well, people got really upset about that. And, of course, the 2016 Paul Feig reboot came up. And before I even get to the... I, I shall, I'll read the tweets first, actually. So... Long story short, there was a lot of anger on social media over this. Reitman actually ends up responding by saying, and I'll quote the tweet here. Wow, that came out wrong. I have nothing but admiration for Paul and Leslie and Kate and Melissa and Kristen and the bravery with which they made Ghostbusters 2016. They expanded the universe and made an amazing movie. Now, you might think, okay, that's disingenuous. He just doesn't want to get himself in trouble. Then Paul Feig himself... The man that was responsible for that reboot not only quoted the tweet, but he goes on to say, and I quote, Jason was a supporter of mine at a time when I couldn't get movies made. He has always been a true gentleman to me and a supporter of Ghostbusters Answer the Call. I can't wait to see his take on the Ghostbusters universe. Big love and respect to you, Jason. Your fan, Paul. Can we relax now? Please? Can we just relax Clearly, this was just a poor choice of words on Jason's part. A guy that's very, very passionate about this. I mean, of course, his dad did the originals. He just wants this to be a great movie and something that he remembers that he loved. Now, this is where I'm going to get in trouble just a little bit with everybody. So I'll start here. Can we stop acting like the Ghostbusters 2016 movie was a good movie? And, I, and I'm going to say that, saying this, and if you heard my review of it when I was talking about it, I didn't, I didn't think it was a terrible movie, first of all. Second of all, the, the, reason I th- the reasons I thought the movie were bad had nothing to do with the ladies in it or the fact that it was an all-female Ghostbusters theme. I had no problem with that. I actually thought that that was great. 
To me, it was Paul Feig that was the problem, the way the movie was executed. The villain was terrible, not only forgettable, but just very poorly executed. The story was clunky. The ladies were fine. The ladies were enjoyable. And they are very, very talented ladies. They just weren't given what they needed to succeed. And here's the second part of my argument. the What they went through for this movie and all the nastiness that surrounded it was 100% unacceptable, terrible, and anybody that engaged in that, you can't even count yourself a fan of anything. Never mind Ghostbusters. Shame on anybody who personally attacked anyone for that movie. So while the movie may not have been this amazing movie that some people think it was, and you're totally entitled to your opinion too, by the way, if you loved that movie for whatever reason, that's absolutely your opinion. But you also can't get on other people for not liking it for their own reasons either, unless their reasons are something stupid, like the fact that there were all female Ghostbusters in there and all that nastiness. Okay, you can get on them for that. But for somebody like me who just didn't like the movie because of completely other reasons as far as plot execution and villains and stuff like that, you you can't fault me for that. So it's not me being sexist or anything like that. I didn't enjoy it because of the content of the movie, not anyone that was in it. I actually thought that the ladies in it were very, very good, very talented at what they were doing. They just weren't given a whole lot to work with. That that was my beef with the Ghostbusters reboot in a nutshell. Here's the other part of the argument that's probably going to get me in just as much trouble. This is Ghostbusters we're talking about. I love Ghostbusters, okay? Don't get me wrong. And I understand fans that also love Ghostbusters, but we're getting really, really upset about Ghostbusters. This is not Star Wars. It's not Batman. It's not Captain America, X-Men. I mean, if you're going down the list of fandoms, I'm sorry, Ghostbusters fans, you're not up there with with things like that. And I'm not even saying that there should be this kind of vitriol in fandom. Anyway, I've talked about toxicity in nerd culture for a long time now. And I think it's ridiculous to the point of being criminal, especially in the Star Wars universe, but I'm not going to go off on that tangent. But we're talking about a franchise that, if we're really, really being honest, made one good movie. One really, really good movie. I'm sorry. Ghostbusters 2, I actually like Ghostbusters 2, okay? I'm going to admit that. But was it anywhere close to the original? Absolutely not. And there were plenty of people that hated Ghostbusters 2. They captured lightning in a bottle with the first one. And it will always be a classic. But they've since then never been able to recreate that. And there's no saying that this new movie will be able to do that either, by the way. There's no saying, just because Jason Reitman is involved, that that is going to be captured once again. That magic. And, you know, I actually, I hope it is. I really do, because I'd love to see another great Ghostbusters movie. But that doesn't mean it's going to. I mean, do you understand? I think we take for granted how difficult it actually is to make a good sequel or revival, reboot, whatever, off-Broadway play. I don't care. It's really, really hard. We take for granted when something like Captain America Winter Soldier comes along that was fantastic after the first Avenger was really, really good. You take for granted that that doesn't happen every day. Godfather 2 doesn't happen every day. 
Empire Strikes Back doesn't happen every day. That's like finding a needle in a haystack that's on the back of a unicorn that's owned by a leprechaun kind of rarity, okay? This thing doesn't happen very often. Making good sequels that make sense is hard. You can ask Marvel that right now. You can ask DC that right now. You can ask any you can ask Star Wars, anybody making a Star Wars movie that right now. It's really really hard to follow up something that was really really good the first time. So, you know, Paul Feig gave it a shot. It didn't work out. It doesn't mean it's going to work work out for Jason Reitman either. I think he's got a pretty good chance given the fact that he was literally there for the first one and knows what how his dad what his dad's vision was for that first one that everybody loved. Let's say the 2016 reboot never even happened. Did you like the first Ghostbusters movie? That's okay if you liked it and liked the new one. That's fine. It's okay to like something. You just have to figure that out too. It's okay for somebody to like something and for you not to like it, as long as you're not being a douche about it, okay? As long as you're not being a jerk and doing it for evil, angry, wrong reasons, like saying, well, I'm not going to watch a Ghostbusters movie because there's a bunch of women in it, and I think that that's wrong. Why do we have to gender swap the roles? Shut up. Just shut the hell up. Because we can. How about that? And maybe it'll work out, maybe it won't, but we also can't just accept we also can't just say that it's good because of that either okay we cannot just say well it was good because these amazing women weren't no the plot sucked the villains sucked and they weren't given enough to work with you wasted the talents of four women that should have done that should have been better than they actually were because they weren't given the right story and execution to be able to do so they still did good with what they had but they were not given enough and they sh- they deserved better than they got from that movie. And it would have been great had they gotten better. And, you know, is that a shot at Paul Feig? I guess it is, okay? Maybe it is. But I will say this. you If you don't have a good script and don't have a good story and don't have good villains, it doesn't matter who's at the helm for the movie. It really doesn't. It doesn't matter who's in it, who's at the helm, whether it's four women, four men, two women and two It doesn't, two women and two men, it doesn't matter. If it's not a good story, it just doesn't matter. But, you know, just stop listening to the idiots that are going to hate everything just because a woman is in the leader. You know, this all whole sexist, racist crap. Just don't give them any attention anymore. It's absolutely ridiculous. To, to not like something for those reasons is just stupid. I'm sorry. And stop raiding Captain Marvel before you've even seen it just because Brie Larson's the lead, just because it's a female superhero movie. Come on. This is 2019. Grow the hell up. Seriously. Find better uses for your time, please, because that's absolutely ridiculous. Now that I've gotten that off my chest, let's talk about something else. How about the fact that we're talking we're hearing at Comics Pro that DC is cutting their line. Now there are various wild reports about this thing. Everything's saying that you know, they're only going to be doing 52 books a month. I guess we can do do, do uh we can credit Cosmic Book News for that and Bleeding Cool. Bleeding Cool's had all kinds of stuff on this varying number. So I'm not really going to narrow in on any other numbers. Although I will say that Cosmic Book News did kind of do a little bit di- bit of digging and find out that Marvel put out 102 books in January. I can't really confirm that didn't actually go back and count. I'll take their word for it. If somebody wants to correct me on that, 
at down and nerdy seven five seven. If you want to go back and count, knock yourself out. I'll even give you credit for that if I do a, if I do a little update on this either on the website or on the podcast. Now Dan DiDio was talking at Comics Pro in Charlotte, and he did confirm that there will be some sort of a reduction in the line. Apparently, he also went on to say there's just too many comics being distributed by Diamond into stores right now. You know what? He's not wrong, is he? There's a ton of comics. When I was still doing my weekly pull at a local comic book shop here at our home base in Virginia Beach, I'm going in there every week spending almost a hundred bucks on comics just because I love comics and you know it's something that you know I want to read as many books from as many publishers as possible because you want to get your capes right you want to get your superheroes but you want to get great stories from Image you want to get great stories from Dark Horse IDW Dynamite I'm speaking of Ghostbusters by the way go read the go read the IDW comics for Ghostbusters you want great stories from both the Answer the Call, and Original Squad. IEW is doing a great job with both, and I wish they would have told the story for the 2016 reboot, but I digress. Let's go back to this. There are too many books. There just are, okay? And part of that is DC's fault, if we're being honest. It's Marvel's fault, too. Marvel is notorious for overpublishing and giving everybody their own book and doing all these different spinoffs and tie-ins and all that crap. Now, I'll give DC credit. They haven't really done the whole tie-in thing, like they did before. Ever since Rebirth has hit, they're kind of off the whole tie-in thing. But here's the deal. We don't need like 17 Batman books. We just don't, you know, and that's, and I'm, I'm over-exaggerating. You know, we don't need a whole bunch of different Superman books. Not everybody has to have 60 books, okay? Just give, I mean, and I'm not saying that characters like Dr. Fate don't deserve their own book. I would love a Dr. Fate book or even a you know Red Tornado limited series. Give me those. Give me the limited series. I've said that until I was blue in the face too. Give me some limited series. They're just really, really good. Give me like five or six issues. Be done with it. If it's successful, you want to do a second volume? I'm cool with that. I'll wait three, four, five, six months. Give me another volume of that and I'm good to go. Look at Mr. Miracle as a perfect example. You get less than 20 issues. Of Mr. Miracle. And it was a gem. It was a, it was an absolute pleasure to read. And yeah, I was sad to see it go. I was sad to see it end. But at the same time, Tom King and Mitch Garrett's total amazing story for that short period. And it was stunning. I mean, I, I can't even really put it into words how good it was. Give me some of that stuff. I'm okay with that. I don't need all these ongoing series. And I think DC might be stretching themselves too thin. With all these imprints, too. Now, I'm digging a lot of the books that are in them. Don't get me wrong. But you got to be careful with that. I mean, take Valiant, for example. Valiant's putting out what? The most books I think I've ever seen Valiant put out at one time in a week was four. Maybe five at certain times. They don't put out a ton of books. And I'm not saying that they're, you know, the leader in sales or anything. But, you know, it's it's quality over quantity here. And DC has a ton of great quality. I have, how many times have I praised DC books on this show? A ton, okay? So you can't get on my case for that. I love DC. I even love the imprints. But you get to the point where once you're looking down every book that they're putting out and you're going, no, I don't have time for that one. I don't have time for that one. Even if I really want to read it. I don't have the time. And as somebody who's buying comics, don't have the money to read them all. If I am an end user of comics, I don't have the money for this. And that's a problem in the comics industry as a whole, and I don't have the time to get into the whole thing. But, you know, that's a huge problem in comics right now, is 
you know, readers not having the cash to plop down $100 a week on books because you want to read a ton of stuff, especially if DC wants people to read as many of their books as possible per week, you better give them less books because there's a lot of books. Okay, so I'm not sure what the exact number is going to be. We'll update this when we do get that number and talk about it a little bit more. But it looks like you're going to be seeing less DC Comics available at your shops. And what impacts that's going to have on the local shops, we'll have to wait and see. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Again, if you fast-forwarded trying to look for an interview that happened on this week's show, you want to find out why, go all the way back to the beginning of the episode. I explained the whole thing. And yes, there will be an interview coming up on episode 254 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. But if you want to learn more about the show, you can always go to downandnerdypodcast.com. Also follow us on social media, facebook.com slash downandnerdy and at downandnerdy757 on Twitter and Instagram as well. Remember, you never have to apologize for being a nerd, so let your fan flag fly and be good to your fellow nerds.